Where would we be in our study of history without an appreciation of irony? Just when Edward, now Duke of York, must have feared that Queen Margaret's army would take London and thereby seize control of the resources and engines of government to add to her possession of the king himself, he received a present. He had only just learned of Warwick's defeat at St Albans when the astonishing news reached him that Queen Margaret, with the City of London at her mercy, had decided to withdraw to Dunstable. Now, whatever the attractions of Dunstable, it wasn't London. So why, then, did she withdraw? Well, the city authorities, like many of their counterparts across the land, were anxious not to annoy either faction in this dangerous political struggle for power. So, they sent representatives led by a couple of heavyweight widowed duchesses, those of Bedford and Buckingham, to inform the Queen that she could have entrance to the city provided that there was no pillaging. Margaret, often portrayed as the Queen from Hell, agreed to this, but like everyone else, she knew that simply telling her soldiers to behave would be completely ineffective. So she withdrew the army to Dunstable to reassure the city authorities and the good folk of London. She reckoned without Edward of York's rapid reaction to the changing events. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, of course. Yes, it turned out to be an error on her part, quite a big one too. But I've no doubt that if her army had entered London, there would have been much trouble. Why? Because what happened next showed that the good folk of London were quite supportive of York. Indeed, Edward's father had always been popular in the capital. When the city leaders issued a proclamation appealing for calm to allow the royal army into the city, all hell seems to have broken loose. Though there was certainly a strong whiff of Yorkist propaganda in the air, there is no denying that there was genuine support amongst many Londoners for Edward of York. Many men took up arms, and even if the mayor and aldermen had wanted to open the gates to Queen Margaret, it wasn't going to happen. Meanwhile, Edward was marching to London with an army at his back, fresh from the victory at Mortimer's Cross. One thing about this critical moment in English history is a constant source of annoyance to me, that Warwick is often credited with the elevation of Edward to the throne and given the flattering nickname of Kingmaker. Are we really to believe that Warwick said to Edward, here's an idea, why don't you become king? If the events of 1461 tell us anything, it is that all the energy comes from Edward. Yes, Warwick was a key advisor. Yes, Warwick possessed enormous resources. But Warwick had also just lost a major battle and a king. His reputation was a little dented, while the military power of Edward had been greatly enhanced. Edward may have been barely 19, but he did not need Warwick to tell him that the throne could be his. By late February 1461, Edward was entering London unopposed, and in the first few days of March, he was acclaimed as king. In the coming months and years, Warwick would be a brave ally, but Edward was his own man. Of course, saying he was king was not quite the same as being king, and the odds for success were stacked against him. 
Queen Margaret still had a large army in the field, though she had withdrawn it now to the Midlands. Because Margaret had the king with her, she could act with confidence and authority. Most of the nobility still sided with Henry VI, despite his obvious failings and their mistrust for the Queen. So often when people talk about this period, they emphasise how frequently nobles changed sides. But if you want a powerful demonstration of loyalty and commitment, then you have it in this deep-seated allegiance to the anointed king, however flawed he was. Yet for all the Lancastrian advantages, they lacked a personality and a cause to die for. In Edward, the Yorkists had the ideal candidate as king. Physically tall, imposing, well-built and handsome, but also with a lively, engaging manner which attracted both men and women. He was also a very able soldier and a sensible tactician. Small wonder that he inspired both confidence and loyalty. In March 1461, the mood in London was upbeat, despite the powerful forces Edward faced. But he had to seize the moment, had to act fast, if he was to maintain the momentum he had initiated at Mortimer's Cross in February. The longer a stalemate continued, the weaker Edward's position would become, as his supporters realised that he could not deliver the new dawn that he had promised. All Queen Margaret had to do was wait, but Edward had to act. So what did he do? Firstly, Edward needed cash, so he squeezed a few thousand pounds more out of the City of London. He also needed to raise more men, for the marcher army which had won at Mortimer's Cross was nowhere near large enough to take on the royal host. His allies, Warwick, Norfolk, Falkenberg and others, were dispatched to raise men. He offered a pardon to any Lancastrian supporters below a certain level of income, if they submitted within ten days. Why? Because Edward knew that though he was unlikely now to persuade any of the most powerful nobles to join him, he could appeal to the gentry and other commoners, and such men were the backbone of any army. The sustained and widespread support of the gentry for Edward was a notable feature both in 1461 and throughout his reign. He also placed a bounty upon the heads of a select few Lancastrians, such as their leading military strategist, the veteran Sir Andrew Trollope. On the 13th of March, Edward led his army northwards out of London, but not too quickly, for he wanted to give every opportunity for supporters to join him. Thus he did not arrive at Pontefract in the north until perhaps the 27th of March. What happens next is, as ever, shrouded in a lot of uncertainty. One thing everyone can agree on, however, is that it was very cold, and therefore not great weather for fighting battles, fording rivers, foraging for food, animal fodder and other necessities. As to the action which took place, culminating in the Battle of Towton, I tend to share the long-held view that it was a two-day affair, though I know that a recent scholar has suggested otherwise. 
On the 28th of March, then, the Yorkists crossed the River Eyre at Ferrybridge. It was not easy, and it cost many lives. Warwick himself received a leg wound in the action. And on the Lancastrian side, it appears that Lord John Clifford, a fierce opponent of the Yorkists since St Albans in 1455, where his father was killed, was trapped and killed. Having crossed the river, Edward could move his army closer to the Lancastrians, who were camped across the road north from Ferrybridge to Tadcaster and on to York itself. Low on supplies, Edward could not afford to delay, but the Lancastrians must also have been in similar difficulties, since they had occupied the area for much longer, so they too were desperate to resolve matters swiftly. Which is presumably why both sides were apparently content to begin their battle early on the morning of the 29th of March, Palm Sunday, in a snow blizzard. I've noted before that the weather sometimes played a significant role in decisive battles, and in this case, though the conditions may not have decided the outcome, they certainly determined the course of the early stages of the fighting. Of the battle itself we know next to nothing, and there are no eyewitness accounts. Any description of the battle is therefore an attempt to patch together a few fragments with the inevitable risk that one might emphasise one particular aspect and play down others of which we know little or nothing. But, hey-ho, we have to say something. How many men fought that day? Well, pick a number. Both armies were large by late medieval standards, but, as always, contemporary estimates by people who were not even present have to be regarded as very suspect. Certainly, it was the largest battle of the Wars of the Roses period, and since many of the most powerful men took part, one can suppose that the retinues they commanded were considerable. Many thousands took part on both sides. If I was guessing, I'd say about 25,000 on each side. It could have been more, but even that is a lot of soldiers. The battlefield was between the Yorkshire villages of Saxton and Towton. The Yorkists seemed to have held the higher ground, and it appears that the battle began, as was customary, with an exchange of arrows. Here a strong wind seemed to play its part, for the Lancastrian arrows fell consistently short, whilst those of the Yorkists did not. The apparent consequence of that was that the Lancastrians were taking heavy fire and casualties, whilst the Yorkists received almost none. This prompted the Lancastrians to launch an attack on foot. They seemed to have had initial success, pushing back the Yorkist line, especially on one flank, but then the battle dissolved into the usual bloody press of men-at-arms bashing lumps out of each other with pole-axe, mace, sword, etc, etc. We're told this carnage went on for hours, perhaps all day, but if so, they would have needed a tea break now and again. The two lines must have fought to a standstill for much of the time, but it seems to me that Edward's role in the heart of the battle would have been crucial as at Mortimer's Cross. Even more important, though, was the arrival, late in the day, of fresh Yorkist troops led by the Duke of Norfolk. Their arrival gave renewed impetus to the Yorkists and they drove their enemies back. The rout that followed was both savage and deadly. 
If men were not cut down, they were drowned in nearby rivers, such as Cockbeck, as they tried to flee. The death toll amongst the vanquished was very great indeed, and not without reason was the area called the Bloody Meadow. Though we may argue about the numbers, there can surely be no doubt that thousands were killed, making Towton one of the bloodiest battles ever fought on English soil. But it was the permanent removal of some of Edward's greatest enemies which made the battle so decisive. Lord Clifford had been killed earlier. Sir Andrew Trollope, wounded at St Albans, did not survive Towton. The Earl of Northumberland was killed in the field and the Earl of Devon was executed afterwards. Queen Margaret and her husband escaped to Scotland, as did the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter, but the Lancastrian cause was fatally wounded. Edward was now de facto king, and had defeated his enemies, but he was still far from secure. The crisis was not yet quite over, because Queen Margaret was not exactly the sort of person to give up even after such a colossal disaster.